Well, good morning, Ocean View, and good morning online. Good to see you. Well, we don't see you. You see us. We don't see you. That's okay. It's the first weekend of March, and just a reminder, next week is time change. We spring forward, so you have to give back that hour that you stole in November. Uh, it'll also be communion next Sunday, and uh, Camp Quanos will be here to kind of have a display and kind of show what's going on this year at the camp. Today is the second weekend of Lent as we look forward to the celebration of Easter. In February, we had a look at one story in Exodus, the crossing at the Red Sea. Now, in our March series, uh, we're still going to be in the Old Testament, but we're going to go right back to the beginning, the beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and really just look at the first four chapters in the next four weeks. The series entitled, is entitled, The God of New Beginnings, because Jesus is all about new beginnings and second chances. We're going to see how he can take the chaos of our lives and bring about newness. As it says in the New Testament, we can be new creations. Beginnings, we talked about beginnings uh, with our uh, grandpa's box there. We're interested in beginnings. Children are fascinated with stories of their birth and what they did as babies. I remember um, our kids like the story of Stephen when he was two years old and Sarah was just born. He came walking out when he heard her cry, came out, and he had her under one arm like a football and said she was awake. Uh, when my, younger, my kids were younger, they loved to watch their growing up years in slides. Can we have slide night? Look at all of the pictures of when they were little. Family trees. That used to be, and probably still is, a class project in grade five. And uh, where do we come from? Where do we begin? On the Geiger side, it's a little easier. 1809, Valentine Geiger left Lemersheim in Germany to homestead in the new village of Karlsruhe near Odessa in the Ukraine. In 1910, my grandfather, George Geiger, was 17 years old. He left, escaped. Uh, the, the Ukraine to avoid being conscripted into the Russian army. On my grandma's side uh, there, it was the Messers, and they came from the Ukraine to North Dakota in 1892. Now, on my mother's side, there are the Pax, the Andersons, the Murdochs, the Prestons, and the Cripps. My great-great-grandfather, Samuel Cripps, was a circuit-riding preacher in Saskatchewan. He had six postings that he did every Sunday, and he had a farm that he worked on as well. Most uh, came from, on my mother's side, came from England, Scotland, my father's side, uh, Germany through Russia, or uh, Ukraine, in the late 1800s, to a new life in a new land, to live in places and conditions that we can't imagine. And we wonder, why? Why did they do that? What motivated them? Beginnings, there are so many questions when we kind of look at beginnings. Nations write histories about the pressures of the present and hopes of the future, and often it takes on new meaning when we know the beginning. The first five books of the Bible uh, in the Bible library are all about beginnings. In fact, it is a record of the beginnings. It's called the Pentateuch. And it's a name given to those books by the scholars. And you won't find that name, Pentateuch, in the Bible itself. It is Greek. Penta means five. And tuk means, or tuxos means scroll 
or book. I didn't change that. It's five books or five scrolls. In the Jewish people, they refer to them as the Torah, which is uh, teaching or law, the books of the law. Now, the New Testament attributes these writings to Moses as the author. And Moses most probably used sources from many years before in compiling the book of Genesis. And he was writing about 1250 B.C. And during that whole Exodus escape from uh, Egypt, Moses was recording all of this. Forty years in the wilderness. I guess they had lots of time and he could just sit down and, and do the writing. Now, as we look at Genesis, we have to remember that it was written by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Exodus, so you have Genesis and then Exodus. We looked at Exodus last month. In the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Pentateuch. And we find the Hebrew people living in Egypt for 400 years. They were a visiting people. In Genesis, we find the stories of how they got to Egypt, why they stayed, and where home is. At the end of Genesis, we see the people of Israel numbering about 70 people. In the four centuries between Genesis and Exodus, the people of Israel grows to an extended, from an extended family of 70 people to a large community of between 1 to 2 million people. Now, this took a spiritual and a physical toll on the people at the beginning of Exodus. They had no written scriptures. It was all about oral family traditions that passed on from father to son to son to son. The stories, the stories of where we came from. And it was very limited. The worship of the Lord God, the creator God, was isolated. There were pressures on the people by the cultic worship of the gods of other nations around them. There was a limited knowledge of the God of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Israelites of Moses' day would have struggled with identity. Who are we? The Hebrews, we're different than the Egyptians. What is our view of the world? What is the view of the universe? What are our morals? What are our lifestyle? They differed in many ways from that of their neighboring nations, the Egyptians, the Hittites, the Canaanites. Cultures around them, some of the cultures were essentially pagan and animistic. They worshipped gods of wood and stone. They worshipped the sun and the moon, the seasons, rain, weather, fertility. The Egyptians had created a more sophisticated worldview filled with many gods. In Exodus, in Mount Sinai, God called this people, these Hebrew people, to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the people enthusiastically responded to God with, yes, that's what we'll do. But it was a long, painful process ahead of them. Moses faced a daunting task. These people needed a radically different theology to understand who God was, different than the people around them. Who is Lord God? What is his name? What is he? What does he want? What doesn't he want? What are his purposes for himself, for the world, for history? How does God interact with people? How can people interact with him? How do people fit into the world? So the Pentateuch, these first five books, were designed to make the Hebrews a people of God. And the first book of Genesis is all about beginnings. Remember, 
the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And they would have been pressured by the beliefs of the Egyptians around them and their understanding of the universe. Here is a creation myth from Egypt. It's uh, one of several ancient stories that uh, we actually have gathered together because of tomb hieroglyphics. There are some similarities with the biblical account because they were all descended from Adam, from Noah, and just from different parts of the world, and so there's some similarities, but there's vast differences, and you'll, you'll hear it as I read it for you. It starts with Nu. Nu was the name of the dark chaos before time. Out of the waters, waters rose Atum, who created himself using his thoughts and his will. He created a hill in the waters where he could stand. Atum was alone, neither male nor female. He had one all-seeing eye that could roam the universe. He joined with his shadow to produce a son and a daughter, named the son Shu and made him god of the air, named the daughter Tefnut and made her goddess of mist and moisture. Shu and Tefnut separated the chaos into law, order, and stability. Chaos was divided into light and dark. The order was called ma'at, which formed the principles of life. Ma'at was a feather, light and pure. Shu and Nefnut, Nefnut, Tefnut, Shu and Tefnut produced Geb, the earth, and Nut, the sun, the sky. Now at first these two were tangled together as one. Shu, god of the air, pushed Nut, sky, up into the heavens. There she would remain arched over Geb, earth, her mate. They longed to be together, but in the name of Ma'at, order, they had to be apart to fulfill their functions. Newt produced rain for Geb, and Geb made things grow on earth. As Newt, the sky, she gave birth to the sun every night before dawn. By day, it would follow its course over the earth and die at sunset. Shu, air, and Tefnut Mist produced the other gods, Isis, queen of the gods, Hathor, goddess of love and beauty, Osiris, the god of justice, Seth, the god of evil, Thoth, the god of wisdom, Nephthys, the protector of the dead. Chaos was still vast and not yet put into the order of Ma'at. Shu and Tefnut once got lost in the dark waters of new chaos. A tomb was desperate to find his children sent his all-seeing eye to find them. Eventually, they returned with the eye, and Atum was so delighted that he wept tears of joy, and when the tears hit the earth, they became the first humans. Humans populated the earth and had to uphold the principles of truth and ma'at. Their task was to tend the earth and worship the gods. The gods, in turn, protected and loved their creations. In the scroll of Genesis, Moses records the creation story according to God so that the Hebrews would have a written record not influenced by the myths of the people groups around them. So let's look at Genesis. What is Genesis all about? The name of the first book in Hebrew in this scroll, the first scroll, the name in Hebrew is Bereshit. Rashid is the first word in that scroll. And so if you read the Hebrew Bible, 
uh, Hebrew Old Testament, you will see different names because they use the first word of each book. That is the name of the book. So this name is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. When translated into Greek, so when they translated this scroll into Greek as the Septuagint in uh, 200 BC, they named it Genesis, which is a Greek word. Genesis denotes an origin, a lineage, or birth, and it's translated as generation. As in Matthew 1.1, it says a record of the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So Genesis, the book of Genesis, it is the origins of the universe, the beginnings of the human race, the founding of the Hebrew nation, and the foundation for Israel and consequently Christianity's true view of the world. It's where we get our worldview from. It's the beginning of our Christian worldview. That's why it's important to look at it. We'll start this series in chapter 1, and I've called it Making Sense of the Mess. Creation starts with a mess. Usually we don't think of that, but creation starts with a mess. The Hebrew nation starts with a bit of a mess. How do we make sense of all of it? Maybe you know something about that. When the kids are home from school all day, entertaining themselves, and at supper time, it's time to clean up. And you wonder, how can these kids make such a mess in one day? When my grandkids come over on its Pro-D day, they come to our house. And we're glad when they go home. <clears throat> because we spend the next hour cleaning up the mess. How to make sense of the mess? How did it turn into a disaster? Well, Genesis strikes hard at the philosophies that the people had picked up in Egypt. And it begins in the very first verse. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. At the beginning of time, there is God. It is God who creates. God exists. God has always existed. God was not created. He did not create himself. He has eternal life. As someone said, God has eternal life. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have everlasting life. You are not eternal. You were started, but you can have everlasting life. God, though, has eternal life. He always was, always will be. He's not an add-on. He is the foundation God created. And the creation of the world climaxes in God forming a man and a woman. Making sense of the mess. The Hebrews lived in, the Hebrews' lives in Egypt were messy, confused as they struggled to find meaning for their lives, and the difficult as they tried to plan for the future of their children. It was messy. Life is messy. Every day in our current culture, we hear about it or we read about messy lives. People are checking out on life, children are running away from home. Someone commits suicide. There is alcoholism, drug addiction, divorce, adultery, depression. Life is messy. And why are people checking out on life? Well, the answers are as varied as the people themselves. There is one constant, however. Life is meaningless. It is empty. It's unfulfilling. It's like living in a dark hole and we can't get out of it. It's coming up to tax time, and the last couple of weeks, H&R Block have been showing an ad for tax preparation. I don't know if you've seen it. And they use a term, quiet 
quitting. I'm not sure she understands quiet quitting. And I had to say, I did not understand the term quiet quitting. And of course, you all know what quiet quitting is, right? Everybody knows what quiet... I hear heads shaking. You don't know what quiet quitting is? Good, you're just as bad as me. It was coined since COVID. So it's very, it's in the last two years. It started on TikTok and it has thundered through the business world. Quiet quitting is you're at work and you're doing the minimum requirements of your job. You put in no more time, effort, or enthusiasm than absolutely necessary. A 2022 Gallup survey suggests that at least half of the U.S. workforce consists of quiet quitting. Ah, so that's what I've been doing. (laughs) There are a lot of reasons for this and there are arguments for and against whether it is, but it centers around a search for meaning and significance. My job just isn't doing it for me. There must be more to life. And the farther people move away from an understanding of who God is, a Christian culture, a Christian worldview, the more meaningless life will be. You've got to search for meaning. You've got to find meaning. Talk about meaninglessness. Just look at the Bible. Ecclesiastes is all about chasing after the wind. What is it all about? I found a quote from a Foxconn employee. Life is meaningless. Every day I repeat the same thing I did yesterday. We get yelled at all the time. It's very tough around here. Does that sound like your job? I don't know, maybe. Many of us can relate to the idea of meaningless, emptiness, and being unfulfilled. Now, it might not be your entire life. It might be your career. It could be your family, your marriage, a relationship with your children, a relationship with your parents. No matter what you do, you still feel the emptiness, the hopelessness of the entire situation. Genesis reminds us that there is hope. Your life can be meaningful and fulfilling. So can your career, your marriage, your relationships. So we want to talk about new beginnings because our God is the God of new beginnings. As the Apostle Paul stated, forgetting what is behind, straining for what is ahead. There was a 1991 movie. I know I'm dating myself. I asked some young people, have you ever seen City Slickers? They don't know what I am talking about. Uh, City Slickers uh, starring Billy Crystal. Uh, Bruno Kirby's character was nearing 40. 40, the big 4-0. And he laments that he's at a dead end. He says, I've wasted my life. Now Billy Crystal's character tells him, hey, you can start over again. Your life is a do-over. You've got a clean state and a clean slate. And that spawned a whole number of second chance movies in the 90s because it touched a huge nerve with the emerging middle-aged baby boomers at the time who longed for a chance to recapture the best of our youth. A chance to make up for past mistakes. A chance to start over with a more meaningful and productive life. I would want to say that is being carried on by our Gen Z workers today. They struggle for this. 
What God wants you to know is that God is the God of new beginnings. He is the God of the do-over through Jesus Christ. The beginning, the God of new beginnings deals with the meaninglessness in our world. Genesis 1 verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. God didn't create and boom, everything was there. It was, the earth was created, but it was formless and empty. In Hebrew, that is tahu vabahu. Everybody say it. Tahu vabahu. Formless and empty. Just remember it's like tofu. Formless, <laughs> empty, tasteless. You have to add something to it to make it better. That's that was what the earth was. The earth was formless and empty. Tahu vabahu. God did not create the earth to be instantly splendid. There's almost a depressing note in this very beginning verses of the Bible. Empty, formless, void, darkness. The words of chaos and hopelessness, just like the Egyptian creation story. Our lives can be described often with words of tahu vabahu. Emptiness, void, darkness. You might come face to face with tohu vabahu daily. You can feel like there's no hope. Life can be tohu vabohu. It's at this point that God begins to work. God does not leave us there. Hope is hovering. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. In our time of darkness, when we need him most, God is right there, waiting for us to turn to him, waiting to create life in an otherwise empty world. When there is nothing but darkness there on the edge, you will find God. He's waiting to create something extraordinary in your life. Anyone who comes to Christ Jesus is a new creation, the New Testament tells us. Behold, the old things have passed away and all things are made new. God takes that which is empty, void, and full of darkness and creates life out of it. Do-overs in the lives of people today. There are three things the God of new beginnings does in the do-overs as he makes sense of the mess. And we read it in the first chapters, or in the first chapter of Genesis. The first thing he does is he gives the mess form. And we're going to see the first four days of creation are about bringing form. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Organization. When there is no direction, it is chaos. And if there is order, though, in the chaos, we can live with it. If things look out of control, we gravitate to meaninglessness. On the first day... God gave the earth light. Now, it's not the sun and the moon. There's three days before he made it possible to see the sun, the moon, and the stars. When he begins to work in our lives, he fills us with light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It says in John, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. We need to find the light of Jesus Christ, discovering hope and promise and future. God's been there all along. As we trust in him, he's going to do great things in our life, giving form. The second day, it says God created atmosphere, an expanse to separate the waters and the sky. And the third day, God created dry land and plant life and caused plant life to start to grow. And then on the fourth day, 
He made it possible to see the sun, the moon, the stars, and the sky. So what is God doing in these first four days? This form, this foundation is preparing his creation for new life. My kids, when they were little, wanted pets. And so we settled on goldfish. We bought some goldfish at Walmart, brought them home, put them in the bowl, watched them all die. <laughs> Apparently, the water wasn't properly treated to get rid of the chlorine, just put tap water in. The fish needed an environment that would support new life. So we're back on the trip to the store, and we have an aquarium and stones and an aerator and filter systems and dechlorination drops. In Genesis, God was creating an environment perfect for humanity to survive in. In our lives today, we eventually discover that we have lived long enough in darkness and we are ready for God to come in to recreate us, to give us new life. But first, he prepares our hearts. He points out things that are going to destroy our new lives. The light of God reveals our sin, sin that Christ died for, sin that was forgiven on the cross of Calvary. In 1 John, it says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When our hearts are clean, then Christ can literally come in and take up residency, and he gives us new life. What was formless and void is given form by God. That's days one to four. He prepares his creation for life. And then on day five, he gives life. He starts with God created fish for the waters and birds for the air. And then we go to the sixth day, and the sixth day is a very busy day. We see the animals of the earth, and that's big in itself. But then in verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Don't miss that. Let us. It's plural. It's a monotheistic God speaking in the plural, like what's going on there? If God is one, how come he's saying, let us? One essence, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is the first hint of a triune God. And he creates a unique animal. He creates humans in his image. Different than the animals. Part of the animal world, but different. He elaborates on it in chapter 2. God creates human beings. He creates them godlike, reflecting God's nature. He created them male and female. By the breath of God, something is different. By the Holy Spirit of God, humans are created in God's image. God gives form and God gives new life. And when God works in our hearts, he wants to do the same thing. By his Holy Spirit, we are made new creations, adopted into God's family, and we become children of God. When God created man, humans, Adam and Eve, he created them to have fellowship with him. Humans could have a relationship with God only because they were made in his image. And what is the image of God? It is personality. 
Intellect, I think. Emotion, I feel. Will, I make choices. That is the image of God. God thinks, God feels, God makes choices. And we, in the image of God, we think, we have emotion, and we make choices. When God gives us new life in Jesus Christ, it is again to have that intimate fellowship with God. Real love, real joy, real peace can be found in Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. He didn't say, I've come that they may have things and have them more abundantly. He didn't say that I may come that may, may have years and have them more abundantly. He said he would give us abundant life. Life isn't measured by the accumulation of things. It's not measured by the days or the years. Abundant life is measured by our character, by our love. It's measured by our relationship with God. The life that God gives when we allow him to create in us a new heart. And then on the seventh day, it says God rested. God gives rest, the Sabbath. God gives form. God gives life. But he also gives us the third thing, purpose purpose. At some point, we all realize that life can be discouraging and depressing. There are multiple stories of people from all walks of life, all nationalities, who say that life without purpose is like chasing after wind, to quote the writer of Ecclesiastes. Just hanging around, waiting to die, going through the motions of life, like, what is it all about? This is just meaningless. Once a person, however, finds purpose for living, then life is no longer useless. Even if the job is just a job and pretty boring, if my life has purpose, the job becomes a means to an end. I know what that is. Even in Colossians, it says, Whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Yeah, you may not find meaning in your job, but if life is about God, if life is about Jesus Christ, life is about being, uh, producing fruit on the earth, as Jesus said, then the job enables me to live, to beat my family, to do what God would have me to do. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Adam and Eve were created with purpose. God took the chaos and created a foundation for life. Then he created life to exist in his prepared creation. And then he gave purpose to his creatures. Purpose is what many people are struggling to find as they go through life as quiet quitters. Genesis 1.28 God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed Adam and Eve. God spoke to them. God guided them. God interacted with them. And they were to have a relationship with God and also a relationship with creation. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Have fun. Be part of the creative process. God's purposes for Adam and Eve are reflected in the purposes for the followers of Jesus. God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him. The principal reason Jesus died on the cross was for us, so that we could receive everlasting life through him, so that we could be adopted into his family. 
God desires that intimate relationship with every one of us. We are created in his image so that we can fellowship with him. And then, as part of God's family, he wants us to be fruitful. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's what's wrong with much of our world today. Without Jesus, our lives are empty. Nothingness abounds. Bearing fruit gives purpose to love God, love others, and serve the world. In Genesis 1.28, we read it in the message. It said, God blessed them, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge, be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. A human's purpose on earth was to be fruitful and multiply, and they were to subdue the earth, not to destroy it, not to abuse it, not to rule like a tyrant and take everything they can get. In uh, the message, it, it said to, to, uh, to take charge. Kabash is to conquer, to subjugate, to subdue, to take charge. And Rada was to have dominion, to rule, to reign, to rule, or to be responsible for. It's the cultural mandate. We were to, humans were to, be responsible for the world, to take care of it, and to continue that creative process. The world was a wild land. He says, conquer it, rule it. Adam and Eve were to be the original caretakers of God's creation. Continue the creative process, creating form out of chaos. God gave them a garden to live in, but I don't believe that the rest of the earth was in the same state. There was wildness and chaos. They were going to have the joy of being creative in their work. The fulfillment of creativity in the image of God. One of the things that I discovered in my teens was that I liked woodworking. I liked taking old boards that were out behind dad's shed and then I would take them and use the equipment that dad had and build things, build a box, something beautiful out of something chaotic. That was what I loved to do. Um, I also liked doing N-scale railway dioramas and I liked building clocks. Uh, now I like building stuff at camp because someone else is paying for it and I get to do the work on it. I like putting together Ikea kitchens and Ikea stuff, you know. You take all this mess and you put it together and it's good. But others find their creativity in other ways. They're not all carpenters. Uh, writing, cooking, repairing, building companies, exploring, discovering, photography, writing music. Counseling people and working with people, helping people out of crises. These are all creative processes, teaching. In Christ Jesus, we have purpose, we have meaning. We're creatively working with the chaos of our lives, conquering baggage and addiction, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. It takes work, it takes purpose, it takes ruling, being responsible for our world and our community. 
that can mean that it is green, it's environmental. It can also refer to social issues, making a difference in our town and our province. Is there an aspect of your life that seems meaningless, that feels empty, void, full of darkness? To the outside world, your life might be looking pretty good, but inside you know, yeah, they weren't just putting on a show. You appear to everyone around you to be happy and content, but inside you know that you're lost and troubled. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The first day, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Jewish people still count the day as starting at sundown to the next evening. There was evening, there was morning, 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. God loves you, and no matter how desperate you become, he wants to take away the darkness and fill it with light. He wants to take away the emptiness and fill it with life. He wants to take the void and fill it with purpose. God gives form, he gives life, he gives purpose. This is your day for a new beginning to become a new creation in Jesus. Got a little video here to show you and then uh, Ryan will come up and lead us in a pastoral prayer. It's one of the first things we learn about God. He is a creator. He is the creator. He made something from nothing. And not just something, all things. The heavens and the earth, light and darkness, plants, animals and the sea. And then he made man. He made us. And one of the first things he asked his creation to do is create. To bear his image in this way, to show the world what he's like. It started with Adam naming the animals, but it didn't stop there. All throughout the scriptures, we see God's people making something from nothing. Music, cities, paintings, temples, stories. As they created, their creation spoke of something more. It gave glory to the God who made everything. It invited people into a greater story. Today, this creation mandate extends to us. As the church, we must continue to do this. We must use the gifts we've been given to show the world what he's like. So let's design, let's build, Let's write and draw and sew and act and cook and dream. Let's look into the nothing and create. Create something so the world around us can know what our God is like.